We're going to talk tonight about the heart and the head in worship. And just uh, sit back and listen to this text that uh, God inspired for you, because I'm just assuming that virtually everybody in this room is a believer and can just absorb and enjoy what I'm about to say to you. While we were weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. One will hardly die for a righteous man, and yet, perchance for a good man, one might even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Therefore, since we are justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were yet enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more shall we be saved by his life. And not only that, but we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have received the reconciliation. I commend it to you for your memory. It is just a rock. He died for the ungodly. He died for us while we were still enemies. I mean, there is so much liberty of soul, soul liberty to be had in understanding justification by faith before we had done any works that could have ever merited anything like the justification we received in the death of Jesus. So be encouraged tonight. No matter really what you brought in here when you came, if you are a believer, it's, it's taken care of. It's okay. It's under the blood. Let's pray. And so, Father, free us to work on this issue tonight. May that truth so grip these friends that they can lay down the worries of the day. They can lay down the guilt of the weak. They can lay down sin and frustration and fear and pick up glory, pick up joy, pick up freedom. And know why it is that you communicated such awesome things to us. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. So free us, Lord, to understand the what of worship tonight, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we began our session Public worship in a secular world with the why of worship. And tonight, I want to turn to the what of worship. And I have lots of stuff here. The what of worship tonight. Now, even though I have lots to show, I really do want there to be discussion. Because I'll just, I'll just end where we end and start next week. Since I don't have this all prepared five weeks ahead of time, I can do that. So I will not resent you raising your hand at any point, okay? I'll, I'll appreciate it, in fact. 
This is a definition of worship taken from Bruce Leafblad. I want to make sure he gets credit for this. Was here with us for a year and a half or so back in 81, 82. Leafblad, the dean's main teacher. So I'm going to read the definition of, of what worship is. And then I'm going to take it a phrase at a time and work through it. Try to think of its biblical foundations and its application to Bethlehem. And we'll just interact and see if before we leave tonight, we can all feel good about defining the what of worship uh, along these lines. And if this is inadequate in some way, let's try to bring that out as we go along. So let's read it together here. I realize at the back that might be a little small, but I'll try to be verbal here. Worship is communion with God in which believers, oops, I didn't have one there, by grace center their mind's attention and their heart's affection on the Lord himself, humbly, that's supposed to be humbly, humbly glorifying God for who he is and what he does. So there's the definition. Now, let's take it a piece at a time here. Too noisy. Worship is communion with God. Which implies that if there's some give and take here, he's a person, he's alive, he's near, he is seeking worshipers, as we saw last week in John 4.23. He's listening. I dealt with a young woman just today for an hour who said she just cannot believe God listens to her unless she talks out loud and then she feels like maybe he's hearing. So there are certain things we just must believe about God in order for worship to happen. He's responding. So that's a first assumption behind the statement that worship is communion with God. Now, the second thing to say is that this word communion implies a real interchange, a real interchange between you and God in worship. When we come in on Sunday morning, if you're with me in this definition, your whole bent is going to be to get to God, get to God somehow in this hour together. It's the opposite of ritual done out of duty to family or tradition or social custom or to still a conscience, still a bad conscience or to be among people or other horizontal reasons. I just sense that in uh, the church of Christ as a whole, there's just so much non-communion with God on Sunday morning. People come and they think about what they wear or they think about the music, whether it's good or not. They think about whether the pastor got a new haircut or <laughs> and they don't get to God. So I just want to plead with this core of people. You know, if the people that come to this session and the next session get with me in this and you are the leaven throughout this room on Sunday morning getting to God. It rubs off. It really rubs off on other people. Yeah, go ahead, Tom. 
I, yeah, same question was raised to me at the end of the last week. I'm talking corporate worship here without by any means excluding the application of these things for private worship and just for daily living, walking in the presence of God, communing with God, praying without ceasing. Uh, I present my body as a living sacrifice, as a, a sacrifice of worship. So all of that's true, but I'm, I'm, I'm thinking in terms of public worship in a secular world. So hear it for whatever it does for you. But I'm thinking about Sunday morning, uh, corporate times, not just Sunday morning, but corporate times here at Bethlehem. I heard uh, Arnold pray so rightly that at the end of our services, Arnold, we ought to go for those people who reached out their hands for a, a visitor's packet on Sunday morning. Because sometimes I think I might be communicating by the earnestness and the intensity of our vertical worship. People might be hearing me say, don't pay any attention to anybody who's here. But this is the, this is the phrase that captures my philosophy. Come on the lookout for God and leave on the lookout for people. So I realize that we really are discouraging a lot of give and take during the prelude. We, we want you to come in and go hard after God. But when we're done here, I'd like this place to just explode with a hubbub of love and outreach. As you see people that you don't know and you talk to them or pray with them, take them off somewhere, just whatever God is doing in our hearts. Now, sometimes he's doing the kind of thing that just leaves you in your seat and quiet. I, I realize that. But don't feel like I'm ever saying you shouldn't be friendly to people between those service times. Just let that happen. Our favorite phrase is to go hard after God. And I know people pick this phrase up because it comes back to me in lots of letters and, and uh, comments. And so I like to build into our lives as a congregation certain shared phrases that help us know what we're doing on Sunday morning. Go hard after God to speak and to listen, to commune. Now, go over Bruce Leafblad's drama of worship. Here's what I mean by that. This is taken from a seminar I went to of his a few years ago up at Bethel. I'm going to read through this with you. It's modeled on Isaiah 6, 1 to 8. But here is the kind of thing that the communion looks like. This is what we mean by communion. God does his part. We do our part. So it starts always with God's initiative and we respond. Generally, God reveals himself to man. And man acknowledges God with praise, adoration, reverence, awe, wonder. Then God reveals to man his sin, first his own nature, and then man's sin and his sinful condition. And man acknowledges his sin and confesses it. So these are acts of worship now in response to revelation. Then God forgives man, cleanses him, reveals the truth of justification by faith. And man is now freed to release other burdens to the Lord through prayers and petition and intercession. And that's such, an, that's such a crucial transaction right there to, to believe that I'm cleansed so that now I can begin to really do a lot of other business that needs to be done in my life of unloading on the Lord burdens that if I weren't forgiven, I never even could begin to handle them. God takes those requests and relieves man of the burden. Man responds with gratitude to God. For lifting the burden. God speaks to 
renewed man revealing his will now and his desires. And the response is that we submit ourselves to God with offering ourselves to whatever God desires. So he reveals his will and we say, whatever you say, I'm at your disposal. Use me. God is pleased and seals man's decision by his spirit. Man is now restored, refreshed, commissioned, uh, and he leaves this encounter with God rejoicing and celebrating. Heard uh, Doug, wherever you are, praying about the refreshment. Come in crawling, you said, on Sunday morning. Most of us come crawling to the house of the Lord on Sunday morning to go down on our face before the fountain and begin to get some strength. And the goal is that as we move through a kind of communion with the Lord, we end up renewed and able to press on for another few days. Any questions about this, this dialogue with God, this communion? It, it, all of these don't have to happen every time. Some of them happen bunched up together. But I wanted to illustrate what we mean by communion. You should be seeking to hear from God, and you might hear from him in a hymn, in a prayer, in a sermon, or just in his spirit's small voice in your heart. And then you should be giving back to him whatever the needs are that you have, lifting up the cup of salvation, asking him to fill it. Any comments? All right, that's the first phrase. Worship is a communion with God. Next, in which believers by grace. I want to just talk about this phrase, by grace. Worship is a gift of God's grace. The reason we know that and the reason we need to affirm it is because we are born with a bent to want worship for ourselves. That, oh, thank you. Yeah. Adam and Eve basically did a role reversal with God, and we've inherited that bent ever since. God created them to enjoy worshiping him. And they rebelled against that and wanted self-sufficiency, self-reliance uh, for themselves. And now they have it in large measure and, and need it confirmed with praise and worship from other people. And we get a great deal of pleasure as fallen human beings out of being worshipped. We love to be worshipped. And that's, of course, diametrically opposed to what we ought to be doing and we can't change that on our own. That's why grace is utterly essential. There's this wonderful prayer that David prays in First Chronicles 29:14. He says, "Who are we as they're giving so generously to build the temple? Who are we that we should be able thus to offer willingly?" You see what that implies? That implies that there is a grace being given to them enabling enabling them to offer willingly, which he doesn't feel worthy of. And I think when I stand before you on Sunday morning and week in and week out, God lifts us in earnest, intense worship and the hymns rise with fervor and hundreds of people are manifestly meaning what they're singing. I sometimes say to myself, who are we to be blessed in this way? I was with a dozen downtown clergy today. You're talking the big cathedral churches downtown. And uh, 
They just kind of dropped their jaw that we're building a sanctuary downtown for 1,350 people. They could not conceive that anybody would want to drive downtown and that there's a growing church downtown. And uh, I just have to be so careful what I say in public about these churches, but uh, my heart just aches that uh, the kind of thing that's happening in this room on Sunday morning is by and large not happening there. Life. Life. Attractive life that people want to be around. They come in, they feel good, they feel better about being here. Whereas in so many churches, you don't walk out feeling better that you've been there. And you come out of duty. Or you don't come anymore and churches begin to dwindle. And I came away from that breakfast this morning with this prayer on my lips. Who am I and who is this people that we should be so granted to love you? That life should be here on this corner. That people should be praising the Lord the way they do. And as excited about so many ministries as they are here. I mean, apart from grace, it could vanish in a minute. That's right. That's right. And there are so many needs. And I just I walked through the new sanctuary again today, just praying as I walked over the baptismal pool and where I'd be standing, where the choir would be. And I looked up where different people would be sitting. And I thought, I wonder how quickly people will stake out their pews. And, <laughs> and I just prayed as God fill this place with power. Please, please fill this place with power. We don't. Night. If this building is not full of power for the salvation of souls, what a stupid investment. So do that now and then. Walk, walk through it you know, as you leave and, and plant a little prayer in this corner, a little prayer in this corner. Just rebuke the devil and just cleanse that thing with prayer every time you get to walk, walk through out there. They're done down here about 3 o'clock or so, so walk through it in the afternoon. Serve in the strength which God supplies. There's grace again, see? And I take that serve to cover all kinds of things, like the service of worship. When you come in here, you admit you're crawling. I don't have any strength to worship you this morning. I can hardly sing. I'm discouraged. And you pray, Lord, come and let me, let me sing, let me pray, let me listen in the strength that you supply, that you would get the glory even for the worship this morning. Paul says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Nevertheless, I worked harder than any of them, yet it was not I, but the grace of God which was with me. So even if you put out an effort in worship, if you have this theology, you don't have to say, I did that. You say, I worked. Nevertheless, it was not I, but the grace of God with me because I trusted it. I believe that faith and repentance are a gift of God, and these are the very foundation of worship to be overwhelmed that all i am and have and can do and uh and be is a free gift of the sovereign grace is deeply stirring to worship i believe to be gripped by grace is to be uh, freed in worship so i just wanted to stress this phrase by grace without a, a strong theology of grace in your life Covering your sin, overlooking your imperfections, uh, canceling out your hidden faults and guarding you from presumptuous sin. 
you'll be so burdened down and so enslaved that worship will be a foreign word to you. Any comments or questions here before I turn to another phrase? Center their mind's attention. Lots more to say about these next two phrases. Mind's attention and heart's affection. Because I believe that the heart of uh, our worship distinctives at Bethlehem are right here. Namely, the effort to mingle in the best way we can and a growing way the mind and the heart. So that's what we want to think about for the next minutes. Jesus is seeking worshipers, according to John 4.23, who worship in spirit and in truth. That's the one we're focusing on now, truth. And I think I had in a Star article some months ago this list of values of biblical truth. And I just want to read down the list because you need to feel what the Bible says about the importance of truth so that you can see it cannot be short-circuited if worship is to be biblical. Biblical truth frees from Satan. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Biblical truth mediates grace and peace. Second Peter 1, 2, grace and peace through the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Biblical truth sanctifies. You shall know the truth. No, let's see. How's it go? Help me with this. Thy word is truth. You, you should... Sanctify them by the truth. Thy word is truth. All right. So truth is what sanctifies. Truth makes makes people holy and pure. There are other texts there that say the same thing. Biblical truth serves love. Philippians 1, 9. Uh, I pray that your love might abound more and more in knowledge and insight. Biblical truth protects from error. Ephesians 4, 11. Uh, that we might grow up in every way into Christ and not be blown about by every wind of doctrine. And so protected from error. Biblical truth saves. Biblical truth is the ideal of heaven. That's 1 Corinthians thirteen twelve portrays the coming age where all imperfect knowledge will be done away with. Biblical truth is the duty of elders to preserve and to proclaim and to protect. Biblical truth is approved by God. Study to show thyself approved. A workman need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Biblical truth should continually increase, 2 Peter 3.18, grow in the knowledge and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You, we just can't be a biblically worshiping church if we give truth short shrift on Sunday morning. That's one of the distinctives. And I, I have people come to me regularly who have left churches with a lot of emotion, who come to Bethlehem not wanting to forsake the genuineness of emotion, but wanting substance, wanting something for the mind as well as the emotion on Sunday morning. That is an abiding distinctive that I cherish because I think it's biblical. Here's the way Edwards talked about these two things. Jonathan Edwards, 200 years ago, I should think myself in the way of my duty to raise the affections, that's emotions, 
of my hearers as high as I possibly can. That's a remarkable statement. Provided they are affected with nothing but truth and with affections that are not disagreeable to the nature of what they are affected with. That is truth. That's a little bit complicated, but all it means is people's emotions ought to rise in proportion to their grasp and sight of truth and the nature of the emotion ought to correlate with the nature of the truth. If there's an expression of emotion that has no correlation to the nature of God or the truth that is being revealed about God, you want to say, hmm, must be some flesh mixed up here, which is very likely the case. There ought to be a correlation not only in intensity, but nature about the emotion. And we'll talk a lot more about that, I think. Especially next week, I want to begin to tackle music. Because this little phrase here is real troubling to me. Nothing but. That's a misprint there. Nothing but. Is that true, I wonder? If that's true, then let's get rid of the organ. Let's get rid of music. Let's get rid of architecture. Some, we, we've got to think through this. There are other emotion-kindling things besides intellectual perception of truth. Music moves the emotions. Organs, music, motions. Choirs move the emotions. This building moves emotions. Large crowds move the emotions. If we have to condemn all of this, we're in a real bad fix. Because where do you go? You just have to sort of crawl inside a dictionary, I suppose, and shut the covers on yourself. That, now see, that may be the route we should go. What, what is truth? Can truth be mediated other ways than through, um, uh, propositions? Uh, that's, we're going to tackle that in the next week or so. That's a very helpful pointer to what the solution may be. Well, um, if truth is so important, let, let's try to define some of the excesses here. What, what is emotionalism? If I'm, if I'm going to, in a minute, really, really press for heightening emotion, just like Edwards did here, what are we to guard against? Well, this ism on the end clearly makes this a bad thing. So what is bad? Emotion running without the reins of truth to guide them and shape them. Guide and shape them. That's what I would define emotionalism. It's running rampant like a horse and the reins have been dropped. The reins of truth to to guide the horse and to uh, shape the nature of his gait, or I don't know how to make the analogy work exactly. But that's the difference between emotion that's proper and emotion that's improper. It's not a it's not a matter of degree, in my judgment. And I'll try to show that from biblical statements about emotion. There is no problem with motion that just goes right through the roof here. The problem is if it's not shaped by truth and a response to truth. We'll deal with music. I said that already. How does it relate to truth and its influence on us emotionally? But note that in hymns, we should know what we are saying and be moved by the truth as well as the tune. Now, we need to work on this. Uh, Some need to work more than others. Some need to 
Well, we'll talk more about that in a minute. But I just wrote down two examples here. Two, two contemporary worship songs. Holiness to the Lord. That one we learned out at the uh, Holiness Conference. And Shine, Jesus, Sign. Another one. And uh, I did a little survey with a group of people after singing Holiness to the Lord. Holiness. Holiness unto Jesus. Holiness unto you, Lord. That's the song I'm talking about. I said, what, what do you mean by that? Holiness to Jesus. Holiness unto Jesus. Holiness unto you, Lord. And they, they, they didn't have any clear answer. That's not good. I wonder how many of you have sung that song and could right now give me a clear statement of what you mean when you say holiness to Jesus. Well, as soon as I started singing that song out there, I loved the song. It seemed just so right to me, but I had to stop. I had to stop right while I was singing. First time I was singing, I said, what am I saying here? Holiness to Jesus, holiness to Jesus. That sounds like a familiar phrase, holiness to the Lord. In the Old Testament, and it is, it's, I found four instances of it in the Old Testament, holiness to the Lord. In fact, I opened church history magazine and saw a picture of a tent meeting of Charles Finney and a huge flag hanging, flying over the tent a hundred years ago. And on the flag was holiness to the Lord. This statement just comes right out of the Old Testament. Uh, here's what I mean by holiness to the Lord. I mean two things. One, I mean I ascribe holiness to Jesus. Just add a few words. I ascribe to you holiness. That's why when I'm singing that song, the natural physical response is this. Not this. I have another meaning for this. When I lift this, my hand this way, this, I'm, I'm, it's, it's more of a, a quiet, worshipful offering up of myself. But when I ascribe holiness or greatness to the Lord, I sort of do like this. Holiness to Jesus. And I just, my hand is ascribing holiness to the Lord. So I'm saying, it's just like, holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty, early in the morning, my, and so on. It's just the same message. The other thing I mean when I say it is, I offer you myself in holiness. I want to be holy for you. That's the Old Testament meaning of the phrase. What they did was they wrote it on the bells of the horses. They wrote it on the the, 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 the amulets of the, the priest here and said holiness to the Lord right across his forehead. Meaning he was holy for the Lord. He was there. And when you gave gifts to him, he would offer them as holy to the Lord. Now, there are a lot of people who do not want to be bothered with this kind of biblical reflection. Come on, you're just messing things up. We were having such a good time with this hymn. We were just singing it, and we were just free, and, and here you are complicating things with your intellectual speculations about the meaning of the words. Well, that's just the way it's going to be at Bethlehem. See? And some people won't go to this church for that reason, that I raise those kinds of questions. Or take Shine, Jesus, Shine. Bob helped me with this one because a few months ago or weeks ago, you came to me with a text from Ephesians 5.14 where it says, Awake, O sleeper, and the Lord will shine upon you. And I got out my my uh, my concordance this morning and just looked up the word shine. There aren't many words shine in the Old Testament or the New Testament. And I found these texts that would be, uh, May the countenance of the Lord shine upon you. In Matthew 17, 2, At the transfiguration, his face shone like the sun. In 2 Corinthians, uh, the Lord... Uh, shines in our heart to give the light of the, the, the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ, Ephesians 5.14. So that uh, when we're singing words, we ought to think biblically. What do they mean? Are they biblical? Can I freely affirm them? There are hymns we sing here. If you watch me closely, I drop out 
on certain verses. Theologically, I cannot affirm them. I don't sing what I don't believe. I tried to find them this morning for the life of me. I couldn't think of the title of any of the hymns. I could only think of the verses. There's one whose second verse is, I ask no angel visitant. I ask no rending of the skies. I ask no prophetic word or something. Just that. Just, yeah. I don't, I don't sing that verse anymore. I want the skies to rend. I want the Lord to speak. I want prophecies and visions. I would like an angel visitant. Thank you. I don't, I don't sing that verse anymore. I'm not, unless, unless, I mean, sometimes I can really bend the meanings of the words and put in my meaning and say, these things are not as important as that I love Christ. All right. If that's what it means, I'll sing it. The other one I don't sing is in one of our communion hymns where it says, He hath for all a full atonement made. I don't believe Jesus made a full atonement for unelect people. There are no people in hell for whom Jesus made a full atonement. It wouldn't be there if he made a full atonement for all their sins. It's double jeopardy if you go to hell and have a full atonement made for you. So I don't I don't sing that hymn either. I mean, that verse. So I'm just pleading with you. Use your mind in worship. People come to Bethlehem because of the seriousness with which we take the Bible and the doctrinal truth of the Bible. We are distinct in large measure by the clarity of the contours of our vision of God. We think he is this way and not another way. We believe that to the degree that God is hazy in people's minds, their worship will be vulnerable to emotionalism or, on the other hand, to emotionlessness. Now, let me just try to explain this a minute here. I got in the mail day before yesterday from another conference church a request to make recommendations for a CE director at their church. And I read over the job description. I said, what a world of difference between the way I would write a job description and prerequisites and the way this is written. And one of the sentences was um, something like, we hope um, it is expected that he will agree to the broad evangelical understandings of the doctrine of God or something. It's just... Broad, All I see is just a big cloud, just a big hazy cloud of whatever you think God is like, uh, as long as he's three in one, that'll be all right. Well, you see, I write books and I preach sermons that try to blow the haze away and let the contours of God look real precise. He is this way. He is not that way. If you don't like that, you can't worship him. Unless you say, I want to worship God, so please conceal him again. There are a lot of people who worship in proportion to the degree that they don't know God. Because they just have this haze out there. And that leads straight to emotionalism. Because they have to depend so much on the music and the feeling in the, in the, in the atmosphere and the people around them. Because if you try to blow the haze away and say, 
God did this and he didn't do this. Like last night, I was speaking at the perspectives course. I can read right off to the people's faces that when I say, why did God deliver the people of Israel from Egypt? And I pause and let them think of their answer. And my answer is to make a name for himself. And then I read a half a dozen texts to prove it. And they're sitting there saying, uh-uh, uh-uh. God does not, God's not like that. He, he's not an egotist. He, he does not do things like that. And so those people are in no position to worship God with me. See, because I'm going to worship God because he is a God who passionately is pursuing his glory in the world. And so theology in some pretty fairly well-defined contours emerges as a foundation for worship. That's that's distinct. There are other churches that do that, but I get the impression that most churches avoid theology to cultivate worship. I was talking with one denominational official a couple of years ago. No, I was talking with a pastor who was talking with one, and he said uh, on the doctrine of election, he was preaching through Romans, and he got to, to Romans 9, this pastor, and he wondered just how do you handle Romans 9 because it's got this heavy stuff about election in there and predestination. And he went to the denominational official and said, uh, I'm going to start tackling Romans 9 next Sunday. Any, any advice? And he says, oh, I think there's a way to preach that so that the people won't really know what you think? (laughs) In other words, create a kind of a warm, fuzzy haze as you move through Romans 9, and and they'll all feel good about it. Just talk friendliness and and point out a few things that they can handle and and skip over all the hard sentences. That's just not the way we're going to do it at Bethlehem. It doesn't matter whether people are confused or discouraged at a given point. We must deal with the truth. Question? Now, this is, this is, yes, please. I think in the long run it would be too. Although you do raise a legitimate concern. Namely, there is, as we rear children, as we teach youngsters, there, there is an appropriate accommodation to the level of a person's understanding and the levels of a, of a person's maturity. How to handle that in a big congregation on Sunday morning where every level of maturity is present is, is tougher. And I think one, one needs to find ways to state the whole truth, the truth, nothing but the truth in ways that can be seen beautiful. I don't think there are any ugly doctrines in the Bible. Not one. Everything is beautiful in its proper proportion. That's the challenge for the pastors, to find out how a doctrine that for many people seems burdensome is in fact a glorious doctrine. I think the doctrine of unconditional grace, of unconditional election, is one of the most glorious doctrines imaginable. And twice now this week, Tom and I have been praying with people, and I have found myself drawn out, I believe, by the Holy Spirit to in the most unlikely places and circumstances to exalt the doctrine of unconditional election with a person who's struggling with a a problem that you wouldn't think was remotely related to the doctrine of unconditional election. And yet it was so radically relevant because the person was struggling with whether they could possibly be accepted in view of what they had just done. 
whether God could possibly be viewing them with anything but scorn and disdain after this act. (laughs) And at that point, to bring forth the fact that 10 million years ago, well, let me just give you the quote that's been ministering to me from 1 Timothy 1, 2 Timothy 1, 9. God saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our deeds, but according to his purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus, literally in the Greek, before the times of the ages. You got grace and call and salvation before the times of the ages. And God has now made manifest through our through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who brought light and immortality to life. Life and immortality to light. Well, how did I get onto that? Oh, yeah, the, there are no doctrines that cannot be made beautiful if we just are thinking biblically, I think. Yeah, go ahead. Let me just jump on right there. That's biblical. That's biblical to do that. To look somebody in the eye and say, praise the Lord, is a biblical thing, rather than just always saying, I praise you, Lord. It's biblical to, to say, praise the Lord, Quentin, because he hears that, you hear that, I hear that, and we, we go up together. But w- with regard to the larger issue, the only answer I know is to just do what I'm doing. In other words, I, I reckon with that secularization of the mindset of all of us, it is very man-centered by and large and very at odds with the radical God-centeredness of God himself and that he is supreme in his own affections. That's just an utterly foreign notion to, to unbelievers and most believers who have been schooled in a man-centered view of the gospel. And so my approach is to just uh, write books and teach this and preach sermons and take some speaking engagements and everywhere I go hold up the supremacy of God until it's just a broken record in people's ears. That's all they think about when they think about me. I've been reading these letters that people write me on the 10th anniversary. They all say the same thing. Thank you for your vision of God. Boom, boom, boom. And that's the way I'll go to my deathbed, I suppose. I hope that at my funeral in X numbers of years, somebody will stand here and say, what we thank God most for is his vision of God in John Piper. That's all I know to do with my life is just keep just keep putting an alternative vision out there before people. But now I want to talk about affections here before we run out of time. I'll just, I've stressed truth real hard now. And you see, where have I got this down here? Somewhere I've got different kinds of people come. Well, maybe we'll run into it. But I know that there are are just such different kinds of people that are here. And some of you love doctrine. And some of you love emotion and find doctrine threatening and divisive. And others find emotion uh, uncontrolled and worrisome and threatening. So I'm, I've just said a lot for all you doctrine people. And now I'm going to say something for the other type. The truth is to be loved with the heart and not just affirmed with the mind. I'm not going to take the time to read this, but this says that people are going to be swept away in the judgment because they did not love the truth. Love the truth. Not just believe it or affirm it, but love the truth. Jesus gives awesome warnings to lukewarm people. He will spit us out of his mouth. If we are lukewarm, 
we should fear our lukewarm emotions. God is most glorified in him to the boiling point. The biblical commands to be emotional about God are many and strong. I just picked out a few. Make a joyful noise. Shout for joy. Sing for joy. Be jubilant with joy. Clap hands and shout. Exult in the Lord. Stand in awe. Fear the Lord. Be glad in the Lord. Boast in the Lord. Cry out to the Lord. Taste the Lord. Make melody to the Lord. Praise with trumpets and lute and harp and timbrels and dance and strings and pipe and loud clashing cymbals. That does not fit some emotions. And the people who have emotions that that doesn't fit should pray that God would help them grow. Emotion, by definition, is less controllable than thought. Here we come up against something that was raised at the leadership retreat. How do you, how do you uh, keep weird things from happening if you believe in emotion? And that emotion should be, like Edward says, raised to its height. I mean, won't people just start barking like dogs? In fact, I forgot to bring Desiring God in here. On page 81 of Desiring God, I quote Charles Chauncey, who was the uh, dignified Boston minister, in 1843, who really criticized the revival that was breaking out largely under Edward's influence. And he just listed the excesses of howling and rolling in the aisle and barking like dogs and screaming and violent shaking. And Edwards had to come to terms with, well, now what are we going to do with this? And Edwards insisted that all that list of things did not nullify the the validity of the true work of God in this revival. Though he opposed excesses, tried to, to avoid them, he wouldn't let Chauncey say, since that's happening, this is not of God. And as I was thinking on that today, it occurred to me that emotion is less controllable than thought. It is the spontaneous movement of the heart, not the controlled movement of the heart. A controlled movement of the heart well, let me read the rest of it. Um, not the control movement of the heart. No one says, I will now produce gratitude. Or, uh, I will now produce adoration. Or, I will now, in a measured way, produce fear of God. Or, uh, I will now, in a nice, careful, limited form, produce joy in my heart. Or excitement. I will now get excited. Controlled excitement. Here I go. I will get excited. Nobody does that. Absolutely nobody. You may think you are, but you're not. Nobody produces genuine emotion with a controlled act of willpower, except in a very indirect way by putting yourself in a situation where emotion may be kindled. It is there. This emotion is there because of some sight of glory or some wonderful application of truth uh, to the heart by the Holy Spirit. Therefore... If the Bible insists on emotion in worship, which it does again and again and again, if the Bible insists on emotion in worship, it insists that we take the risks that come with less controlled atmosphere 
of what might erupt from the heart. I mean, either you are going to opt for enough control so that you never run the risk of something unsavory erupting, and in that way, cap emotion. Or you're going to accept the risk and say, we're going to uncap emotion and make the best of it. And I think there's a way to make the best of it, namely, the safety parameters are provided by strong doctrinal commitments, uh, the strength and breadth and depth of the church's leadership. And I should add here, good teaching on this sort of thing. So that what we saw at the leadership retreat, for example, were some new kinds of expressions of emotional response to something. And some were very disturbed by this and others. Tom read us a absolutely amazing letter without mentioning the name at the staff meeting the other day of what God had done in a person who wasn't up front, but was off by herself and uh, was deeply, deeply affected by the Holy Spirit that night. And I think what will guard us from thinking that those kinds of emotional things like shaking or sobbing or becoming weak and having to sit down are somehow the be-all and end-all is good, solid teaching that it's sanctification that matters and a leadership and a taught congregation who just doesn't, doesn't go bananas when they see something. Go ahead, Doug. I really agree that it's been perverted, and I think one of the reasons it's been perverted is because the absence of this safety parameters here, strong doctrinal biblical teaching and strength and breadth and depth of a accountable leadership so that no one man is going off doing his own thing and no congregation is without a, a watch care eldership uh, that simply has the guts to call somebody to an account who's causing a disturbance or doing something unsavory or unhelpful. That's the sort of thing that needs to be in place. I, I wonder, though, Doug, if uh, um, if there might not be as many people who might be touched and moved by the genuine working of the Holy Spirit in people's lives as there are people who might be offended. You know, that might be my own fear of what could happen. It might be me preventing the Spirit from working. I think that's where when Arnold Drake said that we need to reach out to people. If this is going to be, you know, if we're going to go after the Lord in this sort of manner, we got to reach out to people who raise their hands in the package, you know, during the middle of the service, so we can say, well, you know, try to I don't I don't have any um, paradigm I'm looking for emotionally on Sunday morning. I want X number of people to sob or I want a lot of shaking or uh, I want freedom. I want freedom. I, I mean, frankly, I don't know of too many places in the Bible that express your concern. But I know hundreds of places in the Bible that express that concern right there. Shout, clap, sing, make a joyful noise, lift your hands, play the loud cymbals. 
That's all over the place. Whereas be careful not to offend anybody is scarcely to be found. A little bit, but not too much. Mike? Risks that come with the less controlled atmosphere of what might erupt from the heart. Um, I, I assume we communicate uh, pretty strong expectations of people in one kind of group or another just by tradition or verbal statements or order of service in the bulletin or whatever, which we must because I have numerous people coming to me and saying, oh, I wanted to say amen this morning. Well, what did I say that kept you from saying amen? I mean, something's being communicated here uh, that that uh, they, they're not free to say right on. Um, we have a, con- a fairly controlled atmosphere on Sunday morning. And uh, I would like people to feel free to give me a lot more verbal feedback. And I can clearly imagine it getting out of hand. I spent three and a half hours in a service on Sunday down at Bethesda Baptist. I was the last of nine preachers to preach. And, uh, and they said many interesting things in response. And I put a lot of them in the star this week as I reflected out loud on, on that experience. So everything can get out of hand. Everything can be imagined as a, an awful destruction of what we cherish at Bethlehem. But if you want to be biblical, it seems to me like we need to just uh, provide an atmosphere in which there can uh, be a more free expression. I'd like to have an atmosphere in which nobody condemns anybody for not raising his hand and nobody condemns anybody for raising his hands. I mean, that, that's the kind of freedom I'd like to have. So that if the person next to you goes like this, you don't say, oh, good grief. What are they trying to do? You know, uh, it, that you just don't do that. Or if we had room that there would be a little spot in the service maybe where we would say, if you want to stand or kneel or sit for these three minutes of quietness or worship singing, do that. And then the person who's sitting wouldn't feel indicted because the person next to him turned around and, and got real serious. Like, you're unspiritual and I'm spiritual. See, I, I'd, I'd like the kind of freedom where we just would not be labeling each other and fearing each other and criticizing each other. That's a little bit, maybe. Does that help, David? Yeah, I judge. I'm one of the leaders of this church. I have the doctrinal oversight and I have responsibility for keeping order on Sunday morning, I think. I judge, first of all, by who it is. And second, by the spirit of the moment. Does it seem right? Is it an ugly intrusion? And then I'd probably say, okay, don't take too long now, but go ahead. Let's see. And then I would be, I would be looking to others with me to get vibrations here. Is, is this in tune with God or is this weird off the wall of the flesh? And, and probably if it got carried on too long, I'd say, okay, we can't keep going that long because the spirits of prophets are in the control of prophets. You can sit down now. I've got a prophetic word too that I'm going to give. Or if it was really of the Lord and was moving people, we would stop, stop and pray over it. And I, I, I think I could handle that. I've thought often, you know, about what we, we've handled some pretty funny things here on Sunday morning. Um, our time is up and you've got to go to your next classes. So we're going to pick it up right there next week and spend time on the what. Let me pray with you before you go. 
And uh, just ask the God, ask God to be giving us balance and wisdom in these things. Um, I know that there's deep concern that what we cherish and love at Bethlehem on Sunday mornings and Sunday nights not be jeopardized by any massive or significant change so that you become a, uh, a TV kind of a church. And I don't think any of us who wants the kind of freedom that I've just described wants to destroy anything beautiful and great. And I think the combination of truth and emotion, white-hot affection and razor-sharp insight, if we keep saying yes to both of those, the Lord's going to keep us on balance here. Father, I pray that that be true, that you'd really help us help each other, that we'd love each other, that we'd have the kind of freedom in you to pour out our hearts in affection to you in song and in prayer and in meditation and that you would meet us in great power on Sunday morning and so demonstrate your power that outsiders coming in, no matter what they saw, would themselves feel the power of the Holy Spirit upon their own hearts and not just be able to sit back and watch like spectators. Grant, O God, I pray that that kind of moving of the Spirit be among us as you teach us to worship In Jesus' name, amen.